uh, our passage tonight, Numbers 5, in verses 11 to 31. Now, this is one of the strangest passages I will ever preach. <laughs> I bet you have never heard a sermon on this passage. I, it would surprise me if you, if you did. I have certainly never preached this passage before, so the only sermon I've ever heard on this passage will be uh, the one I'm in right now. And um, this is the kind of passage that normally um, you wouldn't just seek out to preach. You know, you get a, an invitation to be a guest preacher at a church. You know what I'm going to choose is Numbers 5, 11 to 31. It probably does not happen. It, um, it is the kind of passage that you, that you come to and that you deal with because you're preaching through sections of Scripture, uh, which is our custom here. And we're eager to understand context and the flow of passages and what the writer is doing in the not only in the ancient world, but how this ties to the work of Christ. We have all of those concerns as we deal with an Old Testament text. This is one of the strangest passages um, in the Old Testament laws. And that's because of its uniqueness. It is a law about a ritual, about a series of steps that somebody's going to do. And the result is a supernatural result. That's what's so unique here. There, there is a, a test, a series of procedures in a ritual that will reveal something. Well, what's the gist here? This is a ritual that reveals the innocence or guilt when there's an accusation of adultery. This is a ritual that reveals the innocence or guilt when there's an accusation of adultery. And the reason this ritual would be employed is connected to two other factors. Number one, there are no witnesses to appeal to about this accusation. It's not as if somebody can say, oh, yes, for sure, adultery had happened because we came upon a situation and then him and her. And instead, there are no witnesses to appeal to. You're, you're left, in other words, by implication with praying that the Lord would grant clarity on a situation. Then factor number two, the wife is insistent on her innocence. That's the only reason this ritual would ever take place. I mean, you could have the situation where the husband is suspicious and makes an accusation of adultery, and the wife says, look, yes, that's exactly what's happened. Well, then there's no going through Numbers 5, 11 to 31. This exists as a ritual for two factors. There are no witnesses who could confirm or deny the accusations uh, besides the wife. And number two, um, there is, what was number two? I just, it'll just left my mind. Somebody knows. Oh, the other factor. The wife is insistent on her innocence. There it is. Otherwise, we would be dealing with admitted guilt. Uh, so what I want to do is summarize what this ritual involves, and then we will look at the reasons for it and you know, go through uh, the outline that you see on the left side. The summary is given by an Old Testament scholar whose last name is Milgram, and Milgram says, the priest makes her drink sacred water to which dust from the sanctuary floor has been added, as well as parchment containing words of a curse that have been washed into it. And the result is revelatory. Either this drinking in of this concoction results in a kind of pain and bitter experience that confirms guilt or Nothing happens. And if nothing happens, that is a vindication of the innocence of the woman. Now, some people have noticed there isn't 
a ritual right after this about what happens if a wife is accusing her husband of committing adultery. And so some people have said, well, this seems quite unfair. But um, I think that there are plausible reasons for why this is the case. And I'm going to come back to this near the end of our time, but just to give you a sense of where this is going, I'm going to quote an Old Testament scholar who says, in ancient Israel, legal matters and administrative matters were normally done by men. Dependent females came under their legal protection and jurisdiction. Men initiated marriage and divorce proceedings and also initiated charges of sexual misconduct so that women in the ancient world were very vulnerable. This ritual is to come alongside to deal with a wife who has been accused because her resources for her reputation and honor in the ancient world were very scarce. Because of the legal and jurisprudence issues of the day, there was very much a, well, if in the larger cultures of the ancient world, the wife is accused of something or dismissed or, or the husband divorces her, very little options remain. But in the Israelite community, the Lord had instituted a ritual to protect the wife from false accusations. That means in a time in which she might be dismissed without any proof, here a supernatural means is revealing her innocence or confirming her guilt, which if this ritual is proclaimed to the people of Israel, which was supposed to be, hopefully a wife who is guilty of this uh, sin of adultery would never test the Lord and say, oh, you know, no, no, that's not me. Uh, Let's go ahead and go through the ritual. Because this ritual tells you what's going to happen. In other words, if she has committed the sin of adultery, it's in her best interest for confession and repentance. If she has not, then this ritual will protect her from false accusations in a larger cultural landscape that did not value the rights and honor of women at all. So I'm eager for you to see with me here that this is actually to the advantage of accused wives in the ancient world. And because things were so male-dominated, it makes more sense, practically speaking, why equal rituals weren't available for accused men. Um, This is for the protection of the ladies. And in Numbers chapter 5, verses 11 to 14, there is a reason for this ritual. Um, I've given you a little bit of a summary, but this will help us now as we unpack our time. Um, It says in verse 11 through 14, a series of ifs. Okay, so what are the conditions that are being met in order for the thens, the uh, ritual part, to unfold in verses 15 and following? Or I should say the preparation in verses 15 and following. The reason for the ritual is given by the Lord to Moses that's then to be told to the Israelites. The Lord says to Moses in verse 12, Speak to the people of Israel. If any man's wife goes astray and breaks faith with him. Stop right there. That's a way of saying in a long fashion, she commits adultery. Going astray, breaking faith means they had made vows together in covenant and she has broken those. Further unpacking that in verse 13 is, if a man lies with her sexually, which further explains what going astray and breaking faith would mean. And it is hidden from the eyes of her husband, and she's undetected, though she has defiled herself. And there is no witness against her, since she was not taken in the act. So, so far, up through verse 13, we've been given some conditions of a wife who is suspected by her husband, but there are no witnesses to the act. It's not like somebody came and discovered the adultery as it was happening. 
but she has defiled herself. Numbers 5 is interested in the subject of defilement, isn't it? It's interested in discharges, leprosy, and contact with the dead at the beginning of Numbers 5. Those are ritual defilements. After verse 4, verses 5 through the end of our passage today, dealing with two subjects, one last time and then one tonight through verse 31, um, these deal with moral defilements. So in the camp of the Israelites, the emphasis was not only on being ritually fit to approach the tabernacle, but living in a way that honored the ethics of the Old Testament law, which reflected God's own holy character. In verse 14, if the spirit of jealousy comes over him, that's the husband, if the spirit of jealousy comes over him and he's jealous of his wife who's defiled himself or herself, or if the spirit of jealousy comes over him and he's jealous of his wife, though she's not defiled herself. So here, here's the option here. The husband is suspicious, but it may or may not be true. So it's not as if he has proof, he has suspicion. So it talks about spirit of jealousy, which means something within him is like, we need, to, we need to go and get this dealt with because here's my suspicion. You're saying it's not true. A ritual has been provided that will reveal something. The woman may be innocent. The woman may be guilty. The preparation for the ritual follows next in verses 15 through 17. Then the man shall bring his wife to the priest. Now I want to go through a series of steps here. I know the board seems to belabor a lot of these steps in detail because there are 10 of them. But I do hope that by putting these out and by touching on each of these, it's a way of helping us have a visual flow to what's happening outside, externally, in the actual ritual. We're told in verse 15 that step number one is the husband takes his wife to the priest. Now, you know, where is the priest located? Well, nobody would have to say, okay, you know, where are the priests hanging out these days? No, they're at the tabernacle. That's where they are. Nobody's got to have any confusion on where to locate the priests and bring the grain offering. The tabernacle is for that. Which means the following ritual is something that takes place at the tabernacle courtyard. If we were to envision the tabernacle uh, courtyard uh, linens um, that separate the larger camp of Israel from the courtyard, the eastern entrance would be entered by the couple, met there with the priests at the burning at the bronze altar where an offering is going to be given. And in the proper tent of meeting, visual uh, and it's in, um, visible to uh, the couple, would only be entered by the priest. So in verse 15, he brings the wife to the priest with a grain offering. Now this offering, a grain offering or a meal offering, is referenced in Leviticus. This one's a little bit different. It's still called a meal offering but it's not very celebratory because of the circumstances. Even though there is a, 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 several quarts, actually, or a tenth of an ephah barley flour brought, he shall pour no oil on it and no frankincense on it, for it is a grain offering of jealousy. So the uh, Leviticus 2 descriptions of a meal or grain offering include oil and frankincense, and those were marks of jubilation and celebration to enjoy communion and fellowship with God, and here, this is an offering lacking that. It's a grain offering of jealousy. And so it is distinct. It's a meal offering, but not like a normal meal offering. That's the point. It's called here a grain offering of remembrance, bringing iniquity to remembrance. 
Now, that doesn't mean, you know, the husband is going to have some sort of um, imagination infusion or, or the priest have some sort of secret knowledge that comes to his mind where it's brought to remembrance. This is a way of saying we're going to make known the secret sin. And so, therefore, bringing to remembrance is a way of speaking of the result here. We're going to get this out. The husband brings her to the priest with a meal offering on her behalf in the tabernacle courtyard. And then step number two, the priest presents the woman to the Lord at the tabernacle. Step number two, the priest presents the woman to the Lord at the tabernacle. Verse 17 says, And the priest shall take holy water... In an earthenware, I'm sorry, verse 16. I don't want to skip a verse. That gets to step three. Verse 16. The priest shall bring her near and set her before the Lord. Now, where is this location? Well, because these are not Levitical priests, they're not entering into the tent itself. They're remaining in the courtyard. But it's a symbolic placement, isn't it? They are approaching, they are approaching the house of the Lord. And that is to symbolize the gravity of what is taking place in this ritual. The priest positions the woman in the tabernacle courtyard as if she has come now before the very Lord himself. Step number three. The priest adds dust to a vessel of holy water. Now, I need you to hang with me here because verse 17 is going to start to talk about things that sound, it's like, what is happening here? Is this like magic potion going on? A little of this and a little of that. And what is happening? This is not a magic potion. Um, there, there are reasons for these ingredients and steps in this ritual that make a theological symbolic point. Okay, more on that in a moment. Verse 17, the priest shall take holy water. Where does that come from? Well, in the tabernacle courtyard, where they all happen to be, There is a bronze basin, sometimes called the laver, where the priest would wash his hands and he would do so before offering a sacrifice or entering the tabernacle itself. It's likely from there. These vessels, this uh, basin of bronze, has been set apart as a holy instrument or vessel. So that's likely where the holy water is taken from because the priest uses this water for his other um, procedures. So the priest shall take holy water in an earthenware vessel. We might think of like a jar of clay. Something like that. Okay, this is not a fancy cup. An earthenware vessel, this isn't something made of gold and shiny with diamonds. An earthenware vessel, you might picture him just dipping it into the basin of water. And then take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle. Now, I didn't say the courtyard. What's going to happen next is the priest is going to go into the main location of the, uh, or the larger location of the tabernacle called the holy place. He enters its eastern entrance and takes dust off of the floor. Nothing magical about this dust. It's symbolic. It's to say you've come before the presence of the Lord because this is called the holy place. And therefore, the Lord who is holy and who has set apart this place and these vessels and instruments as holy things, he is the one with whom you have to deal. The priest adds dust to the vessel of holy water in order to symbolize this. So, you know, the the man isn't saying, well, I've got some dust on the bottom of my sandal. Is that going to suffice? You know, there's nothing about that. This is specific location, right? And the location symbolizes the holiness of what's being revealed. This means the result is from heaven. Okay, so holy water, dust from the tabernacle, this ups the confidence that what is happening is not only before the Lord, we can trust what is revealed, either the innocence or the guilt of the woman. So step number three, the priest adds dust 
to a vessel of holy water. I don't think this is to flavor it. I think the Old Testament scholar is correct who says, holy dust was added to holy water not to change the taste, but to emphasize the holiness of the whole matter. Number four, step number four. The priest loosens the woman's hair and places the offering in her hands. So her husband has brought a meal offering, and the priest takes that and puts it into her hands after he loosens her hair. Now, what's going on with this? Well, step four, the priest loosens her hair, places the offering in her hands, and verse 18 puts it this way. The priest shall set the woman before the Lord and unbind the hair of the woman's head and place in her hands the grain offering of remembrance, which is the grain offering of jealousy. And in his hand, the priest shall have the water of bitterness that brings the curse. This is all about her particular ritual here. So the offering is placed into her hands. Because then it's going to be given back to the priest. Part of it's going to be burned. But her hands are going to be integral here to symbolize that this is involving her in this ritual. What about loosening the hair? Well, that's a little trickier. Um, Sometimes loosening hair in the ancient world involved a picture of lamentation, woe, and mourning. Um, And you can compare it sometimes to uh, like Leviticus 13 with the leper who dishevels his hair and rinses his garments. He, he looks sort of unkept, and that is to visibly portray the sadness or la- lamentation of what's happening with his own skin disease. Perhaps something is similar going on here, not because she's already been pronounced guilty, but because the situation, the accusation, and the heaviness of the ritual call for a kind of sober-mindedness. This is, there's a lot that is going to be revealed in terms of the heaviness of the result, either her guilt or her innocence, but neither result is something that's just, you know, extraneous. It's a major deal. So the loosening of the hair perhaps symbolizes, again, the seriousness and engagement of the woman in the act. And then, in verse 19, then the priest shall make her take an oath, saying, if no man is lain with you, And if you have not turned aside to uncleanness while you were under your husband's authority, be free from this water of bitterness that brings the curse. So we come here to step number five. Step number five, the priest holds the cup of water and places the woman under an oath. And he is is supplying the language, if no man has lain with you, if no man has lain with you, And if you have not turned aside to uncleanness while you were under your husband's authority, be free from this water of bitterness that brings the curse. Verse 20, but if you have gone astray, though you are under your husband's authority, and if you have defiled yourself, which would be with adultery, and some man other than your husband is lain with you, then let the priest make the woman take the oath of the curse and say to the woman, the Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people when the Lord makes your thigh fall away and your body swell. All right, well, that's heavy. We have this language of a cup of water being held by the priest, and he is invoking this language of curse that she will consent to. In other words, she is internalizing the language of curse. It tells us in verse 21, the priest will make the woman take the oath of the curse, saying, the Lord make you a curse. She is willing to call down judgment upon herself, which is what escalates the seriousness of the matter as well. If she does not take the word of God seriously, if she's willing to test the Lord, then she might think, well, this is just a ritual after all. I don't, I'm just going to keep deception you know, up, and I don't want anybody to, and there's no witnesses, so what's the harm? 
She is willing to call down judgment upon herself in an oath in the name of the Lord. This is indeed violating not just the commandment number seven, with you shall not commit adultery, but you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. There is a, a egregious breach here if she knows she is guilty and decides to go through this ritual hoping this will work out for her. This is a lack of the fear of God. And so in verses 20 and 21, the priest holds the cup and places the woman under the oath. Now in verse 22, may this water that brings the curse pass into your bowels and make your womb swell and your thigh fall away. Now earlier in verse 21, it ended with thigh fall away and your body swell. Verse 22 talks about passing into your bowels and making your womb swell and your thigh fall away. What exactly is meant here? Well, Old Testament scholars do not agree 100% on what the referent of these words mean. I don't think it would actually involve, if you were to you know, video what was going on in her leg, that her thigh would, in somehow be, would somehow be dissolving in front of you. I think this is figurative language that probably is used as external markers representing sexual activity or sexual organs. So if you have, in other words, her thigh and her womb being referenced in verses 21 and 22, I'm leaning toward the interpretation that this would be a judgment that would end her ability to be sexually reproductive and therefore be rendered infertile as a judgment, as a judgment. There is disagreement on this, but I think in verses 21 and 22, when it talks about your thigh falling away, and your bowels and womb swelling, and then your thigh falling away, again referenced in verse 22, these are probably what you would call euphemisms. They are, they're referring to something, but they refer to it by saying it a different way. And by talking about the thigh and the womb swelling, that's probably what is meant. Well, you could, you could see here how heavy that invoking of cursed language would be. Here she is willing to call this down upon herself. It would be absolute foolishness to go through this ritual if she were guilty. And in verse 22, the woman shall say, amen, amen. Which takes us to step number six. The wife responds to the oath in agreement. That's what the amen, amen means. So she has adopted the language of the curse, the imprecation, the oath on her lips she invites judgment upon herself if she is lying. She says, amen, amen, a way of saying, I confirm it, let it be, let it be so. Step number six, the wife responds to the oath in agreement. Now, step number seven, the priest writes the curses, the ones that have just been uttered, he writes them out on a scroll. Now, perhaps there is a specific parchment in the tabernacle that would be used for occasions like this. But what is talked about here is that the priest takes some kind of parchment and writes what they just said out loud. I, I can't imagine he spent 20 minutes writing this. I imagine these are brief expressions of, of the curse. And then it says in verse 23, the priest shall write these curses in a book or on a parchment and wash them off into the water of bitterness. Okay, so he's got this cup, right? He's got this cup. He's taking some tabernacle dust. That goes in. And then he's writing on this parchment. And the way one writer put it is, um, the priest is to wash off the writing into the cup, which is easy because it's on parchment and the words are to be rinsed into the waters of bitterness. I think we're to imagine him probably continuing to use that basin 
and allowing water to flow over the parchment he's just written on, and that water goes over that ink, and it goes into the cup. I told you this was strange. So you got tabernacle dust, and you've got the words of the curse. Why are they doing this? Why this kind of detailed and, and thorough symbolic action? Because they are making every external step to say, we, we, are, we are calling down the judgment of God if you are lying. And you are to drink this cup as if you are internalizing this oath. It is like you, it is becoming one with you. So, step number seven the priest writes the curses on a scroll and washes off the words into the water. Now, there are various scroll passages in the Old Testament. There's some in Ezekiel, some in Jeremiah. And I want to illustrate how these can be used symbolically because. Jeremiah 51 is an instance of this. Jeremiah is told to write down a prophecy against Babylon on a scroll. And then after he writes it on a scroll, he's to read it to the Babylonians, tie it to a stone, and throw it into the river. You say, wait, the thing he just wrote on? Yes, because it symbolizes that the Babylonians are going to be dropped into the sea, so to speak, by the judgment of God. They're going to be brought down. They're going to sink like that word of judgment on the scroll. And in in, uh, Jeremiah 51, verse 64, it says, Thus shall Babylon sink. So sometimes what you notice is if someone's engaging in a scroll writing or some kind of action after that, it is representing judgment. Similar to Ezekiel in Ezekiel 2 and 3 when he writes on both sides of the scroll and they involve words of lamentation and judgment for Jerusalem. Well, here again, Writing on a scroll seems to involve or be associated with judgment. Washed off into the cup that's already got some tabernacle dust in it. Here's step, well, let's look in verse 24. And this is uh, it's coming up in just a moment. She doesn't drink it yet. This is anticipating it. He shall make the woman drink the water of bitterness that brings the curse. And the water that brings the curse shall enter into her and cause bitter pain. And... So in verse 24, he's, he's not reporting what's going to happen stepwise. He's simply saying this is what's going to happen in a moment. It's an anticipating verse. The water of bitterness is what that cup is called. Why is it called that? Because it has, this, by the Lord's power, it will be used by God to, um, to bring judgment upon the woman's body. And that's why it's called a water of bitterness. And I'm not saying if you tasted it, it would taste bitter. It's called bitter, a water of bitterness because of its effect, its effect on her. Step number eight. Step number eight, the priest takes the offering from her and waves it before the Lord. The priest takes the offering from her and waves it before the Lord. Verse 25. The priest shall take the grain offering of jealousy out of the woman's hand and wave the grain offering before the Lord and bring it to the altar. Now, this probably involves lifting it, maybe moving it from side to side. He might walk with it. But it is a kind of display physically to show, to show this is being dedicated to the Lord. It's a, sim, it's a symbolic act, one of dedication and consecration. So the offering is waved before the Lord in step number eight. And then step number nine, the priest burns a handful of the offering. So he's taking it from the woman's hands, and a handful of it goes on the bronze altar in the courtyard. We're told in verse 26, the priest shall take a handful of the grain offering as its memorial portion and burn it on the altar. Afterward, shall make the woman drink the water. 
which gets us to step number 10. This is the last step, and it is the climactic step, isn't it? Number 10, the wife drinks the cup of water with the tabernacle dust and the words of the curse that have been washed off in it. She internalizes it. This is the moment, isn't it? So those are the 10 steps. Those are the 10 steps that take you from the husband bringing the priest with a grain offering all the way to the 10th step, the moment where she internalizes the very words of the curse washed into the cup and the holiness of the matter to take seriously represented by the dust of the tabernacle put into it. The results are in verses 27 and 28. The results of the ritual. And when he has made her drink the water, then if she has defiled herself and has broken faith with her husband, the water that brings the curse shall enter into her and cause bitter pain and her womb shall swell and her thigh fall away and the woman shall become a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, then she shall be free and shall conceive children. And I think at the end of verse 28, we're given a clue of what will continue to be able to be the case for the woman who was innocent and was vindicated. And I think that language about conceiving children helps us interpret what the swelling of the womb and the falling away of the thigh could mean symbolically. Um, so that's why I think an issue of fertility is going on here, specifically as a judgment. Um, in verses 27 and 28, these are the results. This is the brief summary. Um, well, I mean... With those two results, it, you used to imagine, you know, she drinks the water and everybody's just watching, you know, trying to see what's going to happen. Uh, what a moment. I mean, that's a, serious, that's a serious moment where here she is in front of the priest at the tabernacle. This has become quite public. And if the husband has already made these accusations and others are aware of them too, what happens next is going to be known. And if she is guilty, she will become a byword or a curse among her people. In other words, a walking, talking example of someone who dishonored her husband and Lord and whose very life is now an instance of God's judgment. If she is innocent, we're told here in verse um, 28, she shall be free and conceive children. Free of what? Well, free of guilt, free of accusation. This will be the Lord's say-so. The Israelite camp is not to say, oh, well, you know what? Let's do, uh, you know, best out of three. Okay, let's do, you know, we did this once. Let's see what happens again. No, this happens and it is taking to the tabernacle with full trust that whatever is revealed is the revelation of the Lord in that situation and they are to submit to it. So if nothing happens, the woman is vindicated. The accusations were false. The suspicions were groundless. And therefore, the woman should be free with no accusation hanging over her head. But this is not a poisonous drink. You know, we have to clarify a couple of things. It's not like somebody said, well, you know, the priests are going to give you this cup of poison. It is sometimes reminded people of the Salem witch trials. Okay, maybe you have heard about this in history where, you know, you hold the supposed witch underwater, and if she drowns, she was innocent. If she survived, she was really a witch. Well, you know, this isn't that kind of thing. This is, this is different. Um, in, instead, this is, not, this is not a penalty of death in the cup that if anybody drank it, it would be poisonous to them. No. And this isn't something that is like a magical potion in that sense. This is a symbolic act and a ritual that the Lord will demonstrate the results in, okay? Just a couple of clarifications there. Because I, I do think it has the air of mysterious, magical connotations like in the ancient world where such things were involving various incantations and uh, mixtures and potions and things like that. That's not what's going on here. This is a bit different. 
And then in verses 29 to 31, the repeated reason for the ritual. This is the law in cases of jealousy. And when it says law there, it means the ritual that we've just laid out for you. This is the law or ritual in cases of jealousy. When a wife, though under her husband's authority, goes astray and defiles herself. Or when the spirit of jealousy comes over a man and he's jealous of his wife, then he shall set the woman before the Lord and the priest shall carry out for her all this law. So that is the repeated reason for everything in those 10 steps. But there is one last verse. Verse 31, the man shall be free from iniquity. And Old Testament commentators take this to mean even if he was suspicious, he's not held guilty. In other words, if she's vindicated, we don't then turn to the husband and say, and now what shall your penalty be for those false accusations? He's got a suspicion here, but shall be free from any guilt or iniquity. She's been vindicated and he is not held in any guilt, but the woman shall bear her iniquity. And the latter part of verse 31 must mean if she's found guilty. She shall bear her iniquity means if this ritual results in that the Lord reveals her guilt, then she has called upon herself the judgment of God. She's called upon it, and therefore it will come. She invited it. She, in his name, called it upon herself. And so therefore she will receive what she has asked for. It's a heavy thing, isn't it? I think this ritual teaches us something about God's protection of women in the ancient world she would be protected from false accusations. And if she were actually guilty of this, Lord willing, she would never put herself in a position where this sort of ritual would have to reveal that in that particular way. But in a day and age where men would initiate divorce proceedings or make accusations or dismiss women at will, the Israelite community would deal with women in a way where God himself would defend them. So that these accusations that were groundless would be seen as such, and this woman would not have them hanging over her head. What a wonderful gift that would turn out to be. Very important. I also think this ritual is connected to something theologically. This ritual makes clear, and this is what the priest and these who are engaging in this must believe, that our sins, though hidden from other witnesses perhaps, they are not hidden from the Lord. Because what does this ritual make known? The ritual makes known what the Lord knows. And he knows all. The ritual makes this theological point. Our sins are not hidden from the Lord. Though the woman might have kept them secret and hoped that this ritual would just, uh, you know, work in her favor. No, her guilt is clear, made known. I also think there's something about this ritual that's interesting with Israel's history. If you look at the flow of the Bible storyline... The Israelites are like a corporate wife, aren't they? The Israelites are like a corporate wife with Yahweh, and they are an unfaithful spouse. We see that in the Psalms and in the prophets, part of the history of Israel involves what Hosea and Ezekiel would call spiritual adultery. Though they are in covenant with God from Sinai forward, though they have pledged to keep the law and invite the curses upon their head of judgment and famine and exile if they go after other gods and be conquered by their enemies, though they have invited all of that upon themselves, they go astray. And they go after the gods of the nations and they become like the gods of the nations and they worship them and they engage in not the ethics of the law, but in the immorality of the Canaanite peoples and God 
shows a holy jealousy for his people. And one of the images of judgment that is passed to these people in the words of the prophets is an image of a cup that he makes them drink. It tells us in Isaiah 51, for instance, Isaiah 51, 17, wake yourself up, wake yourself up, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of wrath, you who have drunk to the dregs of the bowl, this cup of staggering. So this ritual has a role of protecting women in the ancient world. This ritual is making a theological point that our sins are not hidden from the Lord and what the Lord knows is made clear in this proceeding. It also connects to the larger history of Israel for they are an unfaithful spouse to Yahweh and they will face the cup of judgment. The Babylonians that conquer them and exile them, they are an example of God's cup of judgment coming to his people and the people of God internalizing that judgment and facing his wrath. But the image of the cup doesn't end there, and it ends in good news with the trajectory of the cross. Jesus himself also spoke of a cup. And when we realize that in the New Testament, we see a Savior going to a cross that ought to have been ours, bearing sins that we were rightly guilty of, it is a staggering mercy of God that where the cup of judgment ought to have gone to us, the guilty, Jesus, the not guilty, takes the cup in our place. This ritual will ultimately anticipate the cross where the waters of bitterness, the cup that would reveal our judgment and rightful condemnation for our sins, was satisfied by the one who knew no sin and who himself submitted to the will of God and drank the cup of judgment. When we consider a passage like this, I know there is a strangeness to it because of the unfamiliarity of some of these proceedings and steps. And we look at this and we think, well, nobody's undergoing these steps today and for obvious reasons in the new covenant community. And yet, the historical connection to the people of God is helpful. And I think the theological point of reminding us that our sins are not hidden from the Lord, that's a reminder we all need. But also the good news. The good news that if our sins are known by God, Though there might be no witnesses in many cases to this or that, the Lord knows and we are guilty. So what's the hope of the guilty? The hope of the guilty is that somebody would take the cup from us and drink it in our place so that judgment would not fall upon us in all of its fury, but that Christ himself would receive the cup and we receive mercy evermore. Let's pray.